Psalm 32. Psalm 32, where we read of a parallel idea, parallel psalm of recovery and confession. We don't have a superscription in Psalm 32 like in Psalm 51, where we know in Psalm 51, according to the editor, that David is in Psalm 51 talking about his Bathsheba failure and the the murder of Uriah and when he recovered from that after Nathan's intervention, and we read in 2 Samuel 12, but Psalm 32 just says, um, a psalm of David, a mascal. And David says, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I'll, I'll start by saying that blessed, when you read it like this in the Psalms, or even in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek in this, the word is asherah in Hebrew, and it means happy. It doesn't mean God did something. It means that you have something as a result of God doing something. You have this state of, of joy. And the easiest English translation is happy, which is a theologically um, challenging term in our day because everyone wants to say that um, happy is, uh, is what happens when you're having fun and joy is what happens when God gets involved. But they're just synonyms. It means that you're having a favorable state of inner, inner joy which could easily be translated happiness. And I generally will translate how happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And I didn't say that God didn't cause the happiness. He does. But the word isn't barak or some other word for blessing. The word is happy, the consequence of the blessing. And I think we should be specific. We should be careful. But the point is that you have what you want, which is what, this is what everyone wants in life. And this is why we work and this is why we play and this is why we do the things that we do as we want to enjoy ourselves. We want to not be miserable. Some people, you know them, maybe you are them. They want to be miserable because that's where they're happy and they're self-destructive. Maybe we all have this at times. We get into a kind of a crying jag and we want it to be bad. We want to be Eeyore about things. Because it isn't until I'm really complaining about how everyone hates me and the world is bad that I really feel like comfortable. And that's really the issue is um, <clears throat> what makes you comfortable and what you're designed for is not that Eeyore syndrome and isn't the diversions of this world that will help you forget for a little while that you're in this sinful frame, dying a little bit every day, right, with all the conflicts that come because of sin and death. Now, it's not the diversions, it's the actual embracing and engaging with God. And so David can say the state of peace and joy and happiness that we want comes about because we know that our transgression is forgiven, our sin is covered, and that's the summary of Psalm 32. But I just want to read, how happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, big word for sin, the Lord is not counting your sin as it were against you, and in in whose spirit there is no deceit, how joyful, how rejoicing you should be. When you're honest, and honesty is compared in verse 2 with God not imputing iniquity, what God assesses versus your assessment, but you're not going to lie about the sin, which is the major theme of Psalm 32. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away though my, through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. So the poet has this beautiful image of, the, of, of heat and discomfort. And it's, uh, 
And it's, he's tortured. It's a tortured soul because he's keeping silent about his sin and it's destroyed. It's rotting him from inside out. And uh, boy, do we want to be that person that if we are guilty of personal sin and we are saying no to God as a general attitude of our lives, that we in our conscience deep down are rotting from the inside. We want to be these people with functioning consciences. Now, this is important because as we read Psalm 51, David's conscience is on display. Psalm 32, he talks about it here. But in, in, in the story of David, the war, Bathsheba, Uriah, his conscience is, is AWOL. It's absent without leave. He's a, a man who doesn't even see himself. And he's not rotting from the inside. He's, he's just kind of, well, he is, but he doesn't know it. But see, when your conscience is working as it should, personal sin is supposed to have this effect. It's an inside-out, inner person to outer expression kind of thing. And maybe you, you as parents know little kids when their conscience is defiled. Maybe if you remember this with your little children, when they, they know that they're wrong, but they don't want to look at it, and you know they're wrong, but you, you may not know why, you just look at them and say, Junior, something's wrong with you. I know something's going on here. I don't know what it is, but I know something. No, I'm fine. And, uh, and we get more sophisticated as we grow up doing this. And uh, it's interesting. We don't want to shed the light on the sin. We don't want to tell the truth to God. We don't look at it because we would have to think less of ourselves than perhaps we want to. This is the lie that makes for a, a villain. Because we're now in trading in truth and we're telling ourselves a lie about our sin and we're, we're walking in darkness intentionally and we're stumbling around and it's, it's a huge fail. But in verse 5 he says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not, not hide. Iniquity and sin are the parallel. I said I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh and you forgave the guilt of my sin. What a fantastic summary. Now I want you to see that in the psalm David talks about his feelings he talks about his, uh, his, what conscience was doing to him as he kept silent before God about his sin. He talks about how the deception of self about sin was, was causing this distress. And he, but he starts off with how happy, how beautiful is the life where you're honest with God, where you're open, where the sunlight is the great disinfectant. And, and everything in here is before God. He told God his sin. This isn't about, I, I, you know, I took out an ad in the paper and told everybody. Or I, I made a website and, and you know, promoted it on Google or whatever and so that people could go hear about my w- wickedness. This is about him and God. This is about David and his walk with God. And this is the interesting thing. If you will not tell God about it, you're probably not telling yourself about it. You're, you're, tra- you're trafficking in a lie. And that is I believe, a prescription for destroying your soul and the destruction of your cognitive faculties. Divorcement from reality about sin, I believe, is one of the great avenues to what they call mental illness. I believe that. Divorcement from reality about sin is one of the great entrance points to what they call mental illness. You stop breaking down the physical plant, the physical uh, interface with your immaterial spirit that that brain functions start to deteriorate in many cases because we're telling ourselves lies. I think there are a lot of things that you have heard of psychosomatic illness, and I'm not I'm not trying to to get specific and clinical. I'm just saying I think there's a tendency with the immaterial 
and the material that, that interface between the two, that mysterious connection between the brain and the spirit of man and how that fits. Thoughts are physical or immaterial things. Think with me. Thoughts are physical or they're non-physical. And yet when you think, they can see electrical impulses between synapses across your, your, your neurons. They can see in your brain cellular work that there's an electrical thing happening that corresponds to your thinking. So what I'm saying is there's a mysterious interface between the immaterial and the material. And so when you tra- cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the more popular uh, things out there in clinical psychology, cognitive behavioral therapy. Well, part of the summary, I'm going to oversimplify for specialists. They would hate the, what I'm about to oversimplify. But basically, what you're doing in that, as I've been introduced to it, is you're helping someone who's telling themselves a lie to unpack that lie and then tell themselves the truth. And that's why all the questions, so that the person will start seeing where they've, you know, they're checking their math. You're going back through the steps. How did you, you, you misapplied, mis, you mismultiplied here, and you needed to subtract first and then multiply or something. They go back through the math and say, you, you're telling yourself something that's not true, and you're believing that lie, and it's causing cognitive dissonance, causing this distress in you because it's, you're, you're trafficking in a lie. And secular psychologists have found uh, healing, well, healing. They've, they've, they've helped people relieve anxiety problems and, and panic attacks and these kinds of things. And, uh, and they'll say, look, we have a pretty high success rate of doing uh, this, helping people with these kinds of psychosomatic problems that are the inside the heart kind of, kind of issue. And in a biblical Christian perspective where we're actually seeking to care for souls and not just brains, we would say, okay, I, I see a reason why. Telling myself a lie would cause this distress. It would cause this problem. I'm not solving all the mental health problems. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that make sure you check this block with your soul and your brain as you start telling the truth if you have been pretending otherwise. And this is why I think one of the reasons confession of sin is so helpful. And, so, and we're designed for it. We're designed as, as broken sinners, the side of the fall, that if we do tell the truth, things start to uh, realign. We, we can tell, uh, we can connect to reality. And at least we don't continue down that path of disassociation. I think this is the greatest fear, right, of mental, of the mental health stuff, is when you're not perceiving reality. You're perceiving, but it's not reality. The various, um, you know, uh, pathologies and stuff that the psychiatrists talk about uh, uh, that are dissociative, like uh, schizophrenia, where they say, summarizing, again, I'm Oversimplify. They say hearing voices and, and uh, things that aren't there, and you're per- you're perceiving, but it's not reality. It's like you're in a dream, and you think you're awake, and it's it's disassociative problems. Well, I don't know how you go from lying to yourself and believing the lie and then living it to hearing voices. I don't know if that's a. I'm, I'm not prescribing a solution to uh, to these horrible things that people are afflicted with. I'm just saying, don't lie to yourself. Tell the truth. Then the truth, to take something out of context, Jesus said will set you free. Here's what I'm trying to say, is that I expect that my brain and spirit and my inner person to fail, to malfunction if I'm not telling the truth, especially about what I'm responsible for. One critique of our ministry here, and I say our ministry because you're here and we're, we're in the word together. One critique I once heard was, I can't go to your church. Because when you preach, I feel like I used to when I was little, when I would go to church, and it, I felt guilty. 
And I thought, we're almost there. I mean, we've almost, it's almost had its effect, but right at the point of dealing with it, you shouldn't walk around feeling guilty. If this ministry makes you feel guilty, you, you, have, um, you have begun to have the meal, but you haven't finished. You've taken a couple of bites, but you haven't got to dessert because you're supposed to feel guilty about the things you're guilty of. And then you're supposed to deal with it with God and then be happy because your sins are forgiven and, and walk cleansed, walk in the light. And if you're not willing to tell the truth because, well, that makes me feel guilty and I don't like that feeling. I feel dirty when, well, sin makes you dirty. We are almost to the truth. What they want is someone to tell them of all the riches of God's grace, which we do, but not with the reason that we need our redemption and our cleansing from sin. And the truth is that God is the gracious, loving giver, and we are the sinful, broken people that need that grace. And we need to acknowledge it whenever there's a sin problem. So David really hits on this theme of of telling the truth in Psalm 32. And the big verse is verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now what do you do next once he tells you why he's happy because his sins are forgiven verse 1? What do you do next after cleansed? In uh, Psalm 51, you tell others of God and you proclaim him. In Isaiah 6, who will go for us? I hear I am, send me. After you're cleansed, you go speak the things of God. Therefore, I let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely it is a flood of great waters. They will not, that, surely in a flood of great waters, it will not reach him. You're my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. See, David goes to the personal relationship with God that we're calling fellowship, which is forfeited through personal sin. And he says, this is the thing that's missing. Now, it's not just, understand, it's not just the concept of truth, and now I'm trafficking truth about myself. It's not only that. It's that God is his hiding place. And he's back to to that rapport, that desire of fellowship that we often ignore. He says in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. Who is you? Anyone listening? And this is what often happens in the psalm. As we switch from prayer, verse 7, you're my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. To instruction, I will teach you. So he switches from talking to God, you're my hiding place. And then he tells everyone listening, I will teach you and instruct you in the way you should go. Notice in those two things, you have a relationship with God and what that's supposed to do and how you're dealing with people. The Hebrew faith that God gave through Moses and those that came after is not about just a personal relationship with God. It's not just as a Christian now, building on the New Testament revelation on, on, on the foundation of the Hebrew faith in the Old Testament It's not just my personal rapport with God through Christ and the power of the Spirit carrying out the the works or learning of the truths of God. It's not just me and God. Inasmuch as I am oriented to the things of God and you are my hiding place, next verse, I'm telling others. I'm bringing others in. I'm available at least to share my relationship that I have with God with others. And so it's not just my love for God and the first four commandments of 
Exodus 20. It's also our love of man for God's sake in the last six commandments. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take an interest in you. Um, and notice that in verse 8, in the New American Standard, um, they capitalize my. So it is though God is speaking, perhaps, but it doesn't say God is speaking, and that's the interpretive thing the New American Standard guys have done. Do not be as the horse or as that mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. That's the parallel to the beginning. How happy is the man? Many are the sorrows. See how sorrow and sadness and happiness are opposite ideas? Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness, shall surround him. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. There's so much that's helpful in here, and that little interpretive thing in verses 8 through at least 9 that this is about God speaking to David. I'm not so sure that, in fact, I don't interpret it that way. I think it's David speaking to others as the pattern we have throughout the, the Psalms. But it is the Word of God, and this is an interesting thing. How does God's Word versus my understandings. How, how, where is the dividing line between what God would say to others or to me and what I would say to others in, in the walk I have with God? And I would say that you believers in Christ, the Bible never tells you in this age with everyone having the Spirit of God and the completed Word of God in the Scriptures, there's nothing in the Bible that says how to discern between your walk by the Spirit, thoughts and actions and, and, and convictions and words, and the things that God would want you to say, think, and do. There's no distinction between the works of God in you and the works of you walking in God. There, there is no way to discern, well, I did this, I, buttered the, I put the peanut butter on the sandwich, but when, I, when the phone rang and, and so-and-so, I spoke the truth to somebody, that was the Spirit. There is no distinction in the New Testament, hopefully you understand what I'm saying, in what the Spirit is doing in you and what you are doing on your own. The Bible doesn't describe it that way. When you're filled by the Spirit, you are you filled by the Spirit, and it is your actions, thoughts, and decisions influenced by the Spirit who is working in you, and it's this, it's this beautiful uh, uh, harmony between you and God. And, and so trying to say blame stuff on the Spirit you know, I don't do that. You're responsible for your choices. And you're responsible to be filled by him because it's a command. But when you walk by the Spirit, you say, well, that wasn't me, that was the Spirit. Well, yeah, hopefully all of it was. Hopefully it was all the Holy Spirit in that sense. When you mean you're limited or you're sinful. Now, one way you can discern your works as a believer from the works of the Spirit in you is when you're personally sinful. Because we absolutely are certain in Galatians 5.16 that Walk by the Spirit. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will absolutely not be able to fulfill the lust of the flesh. You can't carry out the desires of your sin nature if you're walking by the Spirit. So if it's not personal sin, and you are indeed walking by the Spirit, we shouldn't really be trying to discern between the Spirit's works, in you, spirits, works thoughts, ideas, things in you, and, and what you are thinking on your own. Now, that said, be very careful, because I didn't just say you become the oracle that is spouting forth all infinite truth. I'm just saying you're not supposed to be so worried about, was that God in me or was that me? Don't do that. You're depending on him and you're trusting him to make something of your life. You make your decisions to please God and your love for him 
as this David is, is uh, describing, perhaps by foretaste in Psalm 32. Well, a real quick um, read through Psalm 32 to remind us that this is a major theme through Scripture, this confession of sin and recovery after the confession, which brings us now to Psalm 51. Love long introductions on a rainy Sunday. Last time we talked about chiasmus and how you can pick up the, the rhymes in Scripture and the, and the Psalms. And I want to pick up on the thought, the, the, the great horror that David is worried about after he asks for a clean heart. God, do a work in me. A clean heart created me, O God, in verse 10, and a steadfast spirit renew in my inward parts, my inner person. And so we'd say that a clean heart and a steadfast spirit are what David wants God to do. These are the two works that David has, he's asking God to do, to make a clean heart and a steadfast spirit in me and my inner person. And we said one of the great themes of Psalm 51 and the whole of Scripture is that God is after your heart. He communicates to your heart through propositional revelation in the Scriptures. And he's after the transformation of your inner person as you take what he says and you trust him on it and you believe what he said. That causes an incremental development of what we call sanctification, of an inner transformation, a maturation of your person conforming to the character of Christ. And it, it is different from what you do with it. See, before you can do something, you have to be something, right? Before you can drive the race car, you have to be a race car driver because you're not, you can't, there's the, the inner skill development of the person and then the carrying out of these things. And sometimes, in every case when we're sinful in our thoughts or words or, or, or physical actions, what we're doing is we're contradicting who we are growing into and we're acting contrary to that development that God has in us. And that's, that's the breakdown. It's the awful horror of personal sin that we're struggling with in this phase of, of life until the resurrection. But he says, I want you to do this work. I want a clean heart. And it's inside out. And um, what's one application of that for you and me, for our kids, for the young people? The more cameras and the more videos and the more access the young people have to the visual, the more they're concerned with the inner, I'm sorry, the outer person, and the less we can care about those things we can't see. We are in a materialist civilization, and it's getting worse. And I don't, when I say materialist, I don't mean Madonna, where we're worried about having things, and we're, uh, we're trading our virtue or our, you know, our, our person for, pro, for, for possessions. I don't mean that. Materialism as a philosophy is that all there is is all that is in the material world. Like we said, psychology, secular psychology generally is brain science. It's generally, as a discipline, not about the immaterial part of man because they can't, they can't get to that. And it's, it's, you can study the brain Talk about brain chemistry. What, are the, what does the psychiatrist give you? He gives you SSRIs so that you can, you know, not have serotonin absorbed in the synapse and all that. And it's, it's, it's brain science. And we have a brain. There's, there's the study. That it's important. But what I'm saying is, in a materialist culture where there is no spirit, there is no immaterial God, there is no um, purpose from the 
the, the very real but spirit being with whom we deal, when there's no physical, concrete dealing with him, and it's by what he's said, it's propositions, it's principles, you end up with, uh, you end up with the perspective of trying to reclaim something of the spiritual. And for example, um, Yuval Harari, Yuval Noah Harari, who says um, in his book, Sapiens, that people are the only mammals, humans are the only mammals on planet Earth or in the know, that we know of in the universe who are able to build uh, civilization out of fictions. Fictions like love, you know, stories we tell ourselves that aren't concrete material things. Love and contracts with people and commitments we make and marriages. These are, these are fictions. See, your, your faith things are all in the fictional realm. He does the Kantian thing where you've got the noumenal and the phenomenal. He does the breakdown between what can be known in the material world and the spiritual and says the spiritual stuff is fiction. He's one of the great advisors to Klaus Schwab with the World Economic Forum. Prophecy hounds are looking at him hard as maybe the false prophet if Jesus comes for us soon. I don't know. But, but the point, I, <laughs> I didn't say it, someone else said. But the point is, um, uh, that's an attempt by saying, look at what man is and his magical ability to, to make things up that aren't real because they're not materially physical and, and build society out of them. We're the only animal that does that in our evolutionary world, the way you know, as godless perspective. And he's trying to reclaim the immaterial by calling it fiction. But he's just tipping his hand. He's a materialist. And it's the culture. It's the civilization you live in. And the more TikToking, the more, the more Snapchatting, the more physical visual that we're focused on, the less we're aware of that inner immaterial reality. And the whole Bible is written to address that. And here's the thing, though. God does something inside. It's supposed to have an effect. It will have an effect outside. What I mean is, if you're trusting him and he says, here's what I I care about, widows and orphans, then because of my love for him and my interest in what he said, and I'm careful with his word, I'm going to go after those things in the material realm. That's 1 Corinthians 6. The Corinthian error of dividing the physical from from the spiritual. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, is what the Corinthians were saying. There's a little little ditty they came up with that said, I can be spiritually correctly adjusted to God because I'm listening to Paul, and I'm believing what he said, and I'm trusting in God. But with my body, I mean, of course, I'm still going to the temple of Aphrodite. The men are still paying attention to uh, uh, cultic fornication. They're still committing adultery and fornication in their sexual lives because that's their body. I just have bodily needs. I have to eat food, have other appetites, sexual appetite, and that has to be satisfied, but that's just the body. But my spirit is for God. And Paul, the whole doctrine of the New Testament that the body, your physical body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit is an answer to that error. The entirety of your person belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit doesn't just indwell your spirit He indwells your body, and where God lives, that becomes the temple, is the argument. So your body is now the temple. What are you doing, you little temple of the Spirit of God, what are you doing walking into the temple of Aphrodite? These do not go together. You see what he's saying? 
And when, when I say temple of Aphrodite, I'm not using code language. I'm saying there was an actual place. In our day, it would have had probably a neon sign, right? It would have had comfortable furniture, and it would have had dark lights, and there would have been some sort of musical att- attraction. But it was about sex. It was a place where they would worship the pagan goddess Aphrodite, or in the Roman, Venus. And one of the ways they would do this in Corinth would be to engage with uh, a, a prostitute in this brothel that was the temple of Aphrodite. And it was socially acceptable. Everybody was doing it. This is how we do it. And we try to take that pagan practice, and then Jesus, with Paul, with the word of Jesus, comes along and starts talking about how we're supposed to walk with God, and they integrated, they syncretized, they said, well, yeah, so we've still, got, obviously, we're still going to temple Aphrodite, but this spiritual stuff, we've never heard of this. This is, this is better than the other spiritual stuff that we heard before. And Paul is taking them to the next step as he whips them every paragraph of 1 Corinthians as a correction. As he corrects them with the truth, the great doctrine of the temple of the Holy Spirit is that you can't do the my body is for play and my spirit is for God. Your entire person is for God. And so if you are doing that, then you need to stop lying about sin and start telling the truth. If you're, if you're caught up in personal sin, you need to stop it. And don't say, well, I'll get clean and take a break from my sin, clean up, get with God, but I'm going back. no. If you're in a lifestyle pattern of sin, you need to stop it and let God clean you up and stop lying to yourself that it's okay. Oh, it's just for a temporary season. Stop it. Stop it now for his sake. And, and seek the forgiveness that comes as we read when I confess my sins. But we're looking for this inside-out transformation. My point in bringing this out, this application, is that we're looking for God to do an inside work. But he starts this psalm because of the outside actions that he took with Bathsheba and Uriah. Do not send me from your presence, and your Holy Spirit do not take from me. I think we ended last time on this one. This is the most startling of the verses, where you and I, attuned to the biblical doctrine of God the Holy Spirit, more aware of this, this side of the book of Revelation, than anyone could have been before, more aware of the works of the Spirit because we have the entirety of the Word of God. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. If you could lose the Spirit of God that He gave you, this would be some really good preaching now to really warn you about your patterns of personal sin. Don't let God get so cross, don't get so crossways with God that He takes His Holy Spirit away. But I can't preach that sermon now because we're in a different age with a different arrangement. And in this age, not only does the king have the Holy Spirit, but every believer in Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit. Jesus pioneered the spiritual life we live and the walk that he walked in the power of the third person from within his humanity. We're walking now. He's the pioneer of our faith. And we're walking by the Spirit. And we are living out the character of Christ because the Spirit of Christ lives in us. So what is the application we said? It is that you forfeit the work of the Spirit in you through personal sin. And that's a bigger deal than we think. It's more important. It's a bigger sacrifice on the altar of whatever, whatever you could say about your personal sin that you chose instead of the things of God. Why do we commit personal sins? Do you know why you think, say, and do things you shouldn't do? 
I know why I do it. Do y'all know why I sin? Do you know why? David, don't do those things. Don't, don't say that thing. Do you know why? Because I feel like it. Yeah, it's desirable. We just aren't thinking, are we? This thing that God said not to do, it's a curse. It'll, it'll, it'll poison me. It'll have bad consequences. Well, I feel like it. We don't think it through, right? The reason we commit personal sins, part of the expression, we feel like it. Lord, I don't want to feel like that. Well, that's the struggle. But if you think this feels like something that I'd like to, to engage in, I'd like to talk about this thing that, that I shouldn't be talking about with someone. I'd like to gossip a little bit. Oh, feels good. But I, I know I shouldn't, but I feel like it. So I do. Well, you know, my theology of this is that if God wants it for me, I, I want it for sure. And if God doesn't want me to have it, I definitely don't want to. That's the theology of God and his wanting. And, but that's a thought. It's not a feeling at the point of temptation. But um, this is much, this transcends the way I feel. This is a much bigger issue that David's talking about. It's talking the way he's describing it of a personal relationship with God. And understand, in the, it seems that in the development of the monarchy, where you look at Saul and David and what God was doing, even what was said in, in, the, in the law in Deuteronomy about the, the practice of the kings when they have kings, the Mosaic law anticipated kings. The greater the access to God, the greater the responsibility to walk with him. Moses strikes the rock the first time under God's instruction. The rock breaks and gives them water. Moses, in anger, strikes it the second time when God said, just speak to the rock. And for that arrogance, for that momentary lapse because of anger, and if any of you who have ever struggled with anger or dealt with anger, but I mean all of you, you know that we have grenade moments where we pull the pin and we shouldn't have and, oh, no, the thing went off. And we regret it, and we're sorry, and we shouldn't have gone. But there it was. The anger happened. The thing happened. Well, Moses just has a little lapse, and you see why the people are being arrogant and rebellious. And Shall I bring forth water? But, but see, that act of rebellion against God, because of his anger, under pressure, which we can all understand, forfeits his entrance into the land. Because, and why is God so harsh with Moses? He, he, God... We have in the scriptures the recording of the conversation. Lord, please relent. Change your mind. No, don't ask me again. You're not going in the land. <laughs> Why is God so rough with Moses who walked with him and struggled long and, and did so well? It's because the, 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 there's a, there's a, the closer you are, the more he's given you, the more revelation, the more you're responsible for, apparently. And so uh, David has the spirit of God as the king, as the anointed of Yahweh. Where do we find out that David was anointed by the Lord? We, we find that in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the anointing of David. One of the great Bible stories. Jesse's kids. I've rejected Eliab. I've rejected these others. And then the great principle that God looks on the, the heart. Man, you're worried about his outward appearance, back to the inside out, but God is looking at the heart. And apparently... The way that story is developed in 1 Samuel 16, it is a merit issue. God is pleased with the character of David. Now, I would say David's character has been developed by God's grace, but he says that character is the person that is the man after my heart, and I'm choosing him. I'm looking on the heart. Well, 
It is at that point when Samuel pours oil, schmears or pours shalak, uh, uh, mashach, when he pours or smears oil on David's forehead to anoint him, that you have the Holy Spirit comes mightily upon him, as we read in 1 Samuel 16. Do you see a physical ritual and a spiritual reality? Do you see that happening? That, that Samuel is obeying God. He says, take your horn of oil and go. And he tells him to do this physical ritual, designating. But God, the Spirit, comes mightily upon David. And so I don't think the oil brings the Spirit. I think the oil, by God's sovereign directive to Samuel, signifies God's chosen, and that chosen gets the Spirit. There's a signification happening by the oil. And uh, that answers the question people might have, well, should we not be smearing oil? I don't think so. You're not going to bring the Holy Spirit with oil. Whether you preach on TV in Dallas in the 1980s or not, uh, the oil isn't going to do it. It's that God is God directed Samuel, and this is a... This is a spiritual reality, okay? But the, the big point is that, that the Holy Spirit lives in David to make him a successful king, to make him useful to God in the actions he takes as king. And, D- and David apparently has this endowment, this, this presence of the Spirit of God on him from the anointing to the point after the Bathsheba incident when he's praying for God not to do this. He still has the Spirit. But in 1 Samuel 16, it's very clear that the parallel is being established. The Holy Spirit sets forth on David and departs from Saul. And David is saying, this thing that you did with Saul, don't do it to me. We've seen this before, that the Holy Spirit departed from David. Parallel to the having of the Spirit in this Old Testament ministry of endowment is God's presence It's the parallel idea, that personal relationship with God, the benefits that I have. And again, my application here is that you and I should think of fellowship with God, walking with him and the truth as much more important than, well, if I confess, I can get back in fellowship. We should really think um, highly of the fact that God has brought us into fellowship with himself. I think Jesus describes this fellowship, John calls it walking in the light, in 1 John 1, 6, if we walk in the light as God himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus goes on cleansing us from all sin. But Jesus said something startling about this fellowship in John 14. I think he describes it, the enjoyment of spiritual life, the enjoyment of eternal life, the having of it and living it. When he said in John 14... In verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. And that day you will know that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and I in you. See, I think that's fellowship. That's enjoying what is this mutual indwelling of the Father and Son and Spirit, and you're brought into that. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, I'm in you. You're brought into the relationship that's always been going on. In the Trinity, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. So there's a disclosure, there's a personal rapport, there's a being in his presence, if you will. 
Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. We will come to live. We will come to him and make our abode with him. And what happens, theologians want to say, that's the gospel. That's just believing Christ as your savior and really give all of your life and all the other things they'll put into the gospel besides faith. And they'll say that every true believer has this. But if you actually read it and let him speak and, and, and submit to what he's saying, he's saying this is performance. This is having his commandments and keeping them. This is walking. What, what is it if God gives you a directive and you say no? What, what's a word for that? Disobedience. What's another word? Give me a three-letter word for that. Sin. How would I know that disobedience is tantamount to sin? Where would I get the idea that the, one of the core senses of sin is in disobedience? Where does that start in the Bible? Genesis 2.17 is the prohibition, and Genesis 3 is the disobedience of the prohibition. It is the eating what he said not to eat. And that's the origin of sin. The very definition of it involves disobedience. This is why it blows my mind that the grace people that can't talk about um, obedience because they're worried about works canceling grace or something. Look, and the same crowd doesn't want to talk about confession of sin either. Some people said, hmm, all right. If anyone loves me, how, how do you know you love Jesus? You have and keep his commandments. That's his Love language. Well, I just love him. Do you, do you obey him? Well, no, but I love him. No, not, the, not the way he wants to be loved. Jesus wants you to have and keep his commandments. That's also the Great Commission. But he who loves me, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. We will come to him and make our abode with him. I believe this is fellowship with God. I believe this abiding work of the presence of God with you is forfeited through personal sin. And I don't think it means you lose your salvation or you lose uh, the, the indwelling spirit. I think you lose the blessing, the benefit. What is the temple of the Holy Spirit for? It's the abode of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's a conditional thing when he says, if, he says it as a Greek condition, if anyone keeps my word. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and we'll make our abode with him. Let's test it. Christians that walk with him, that are trusting him, that are obeying him, he's, he's making his abode. That's fellowship. What about Christians that won't? What about the Christian that says no? Lord, I'll be back in a minute. Not keeping his command. And I would say this is, this is something beyond I'm in, I'm justified, I'm baptized by the Spirit, all the things that happen when you first trust in Christ. This is a big deal that you would not forfeit fellowship with God. Now, I don't, I don't, then you, you could say, well, David's just, you know, he sinned. And so, like, are you saying that the Holy Spirit endowment is the same as fellowship with God? I'm not saying that. I'm saying that for David, he's got a special endowment, a special gift from God that the Spirit lives in him or is working, is set forth upon him. And he doesn't want that special blessing to go away. He doesn't want to lose that. And I would compare that to the fact that you have what's described as the Father and Son making their abode in you. 
as you walk with him. It's a bigger deal to have fellowship with God than we probably think or feel. Father, we want to walk in fellowship with you. We thank you for the time that we've been able to think through today this confession of sin issue, the telling the truth. It's confession is simply telling the truth to you, acknowledging it and making it a personal uh, interaction. Thank you that you have so designed history and that we're uncomfortable with it, but you've so designed history right now that we walk by faith and not by sight. And Father, we want to see you. We long for what they've called the beatific vision. We want to see your son, and as John says, to be as he is because we see him. We look forward to that. Until that day, Father, keep our, um, keep our finger in the Bible. Keep our eyes attentive to your word. Keep our hearts close to you as we trust you through it. In Jesus' name, amen.